Hello and welcome everyone again to the Librarius. I am your chief librarian, Chris Morgan, and I am once again happy to be here. I'm going to keep this intro relatively short and sweet. We have two segments lined up. I say we, I mean I, because I am me and I am not we. Anyway, I have two segments lined up for you today. The first segment is our session zero for our crusade campaign, the Diadem War where I have all of my fellow players in with me together to speak about what we're planning on doing. I'll be putting up some photos on my Facebook page. You'll also see some photos slash videos of the different Warlord characters that we brought to the meeting for your viewing pleasure on the YouTube video. And that didn't go as long as I was expecting it to go, which probably means that I forgot to talk about something that I meant to, but whatever it is, it's been a week and I still can't think of it. So wish me luck. <laughs> and so far as hobby progress is concerned right now, I'm just working on a diorama for my friend, Ben. I made a, I made a promise to him that after his graduation from law school, that I would paint a diorama for him. And it is the Abaddon versus Loken one. And I am Committed to finishing that before the end of September. I'd like to finish it sooner if I can. It's just things have been pretty crazy and busy. Like life always is for everybody, right? But I will have that done for him by the end of September. And as I make some progress on that, I'll put some pictures up on the Facebook page as well. Facebook.com slash Brother Captain Morgan is where you can find me. But the second segment is book reviews. And this being the librarian, it's about time we reviewed some books. Am I right? So today I am reviewing The Infinite and the Divine by Robert Rath, and then I am also reviewing Fury of Magnus by Graham McNeil. Now I'm just going to put this disclaimer out for you that I keep calling it Wrath of Magnus in the segment. I'm sure you can understand why, but it is actually Fury of Magnus. So keep that in mind as I continually embarrass myself and screw up. I would also like to apologize a bit for the poor quality of the audio in this episode. I am not really an audio expert. I try to do my best to keep things regular and good quality, but it kind of got away from me this time, and I wasn't sure how to do it without completely trying to redo everything. So if the volume gets a little inconsistent, if the voices get a little louder or quieter, I apologize. Hopefully I can mitigate that for the next episode. And so far as gaming is concerned, I haven't done any games of 40k, though I have been doing some Dungeons and Dragons. So I have not been neglecting my gaming responsibilities. I have just been applying myself in a somewhat different direction the last couple weeks. So far as my goals for the next two weeks before the next episode is out, the next episode may not be out for three weeks, maybe four, depending on how things go, because... I have the Las Vegas team tournament coming up, and that is going to be taking place during the time where I usually put the show together. So if I am fortunate enough to be able to put another show together, get it edited and all that in my spare time during the week while doing everything else that I have to do, then the show will either be early or on time. But otherwise, plan on waiting maybe a week after that. Where I am going to be judging at the LVTT, I'd like to just invite everyone again that if you listen to the show and you like it, come say hi. I'd be happy to talk to you. That pretty much covers the announcements and the opening of the episode, so thank you for coming along with me. Once again, I apologize if the audio is not as consistent as I would prefer it to be, 
But better to put out something than to put out nothing. Unless it's full of chewing noises. Then just, I could die. Anyway, enjoy. Hey everybody and welcome finally to our Diadem War Session Zero. I am Chris Morgan, the Blood Angel player slash GM slash Chief Librarian, and I am very happy to introduce Rich Mahoney. Howdy. Orky Rich. Thanks. And Zach. Hello there. Welcome everybody. General Kenobi. I couldn't help it, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're, we are already one pop culture reference deep. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what uh, what spawned that one, except from maybe just a hello there. Yep, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Okay, well, this is off to a great start, guys. <laughs> so the Dino War, I would like to introduce our setting to the listeners and to you guys. The Diadem War is a multi-system campaign setting utilizing space warfare, skirmish combat, and army battles set in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. We will be discussing the format of the campaign. We'll be answering any questions that people have. We'll be talking about the kinds of games that we're going to play. We'll be introducing our warlords. We'll be talking a little bit about the crusade system and some of the, let's call them house rules that we're going to do for certain roles and requisitions and things like that. And Let's go ahead and get started with the introduction to the setting. So this is just a little lore blurb I wrote up as a reason that all of us are getting together to fight. So, the Diadem War is set in a cluster of stars on the far side of the Cicatrix Maledictum. The Diadem Cluster is so named because the stars that make up the cluster crown the constellation known as the Bride of the Emperor. It is said that Sol itself is located at the heart this constellation's shape when viewed from the far side of the galaxy. And it was a sign of comfort for the humans in this faraway place to look upon the night sky and see a reminder of their heritage and the birthplace of mankind. Now to look up to the sky in search of Terra is an invitation to nightmares and madness as the maledictum's star burns across the sky. Now the sector is caught up in frantic wars that plague the Dark Imperium, the rich minerals and industry of the Deveda system drew the attention of the marooned war boss Shaka Durg, separated from the greater portion of Watch Rock by a rogue warp swarm. Meanwhile, in the Vidalia system, an agricultural world responsible for the food supply of 11% of the whole sector, it began reporting disappearances in the regions closest to the planet's poles. Reports mentioned the vengeful dead rising from the ground below. To make matters worse, Drawn in by the promise of a rich harvest of souls and the sorry state of the defenses left disrupted in the wake of the maledictum's emergence, the Drukhari have come to suckle themselves on the pain and torment of the Diadem's population. Archon Serenai Ariensis, weary of his banishment from the Dark City, means to use the spoils of the Diadem stars to buy his way back into the influence of Black Court. Attempts to resist these invading forces have been feeble and haphazard, but have kept the diadem from outright collapse. The astropath's cries for help seemed for naught until a signal made it through 
garbled and faint, the blood angels were coming to save Thida. Dante deployed elements of the Third Company to stabilize the region in the name of some inscrutable long-term strategy. Captain Machiavelli's orders were clear. Secure the system as a staging point for operations along the whole constellation. This vanguard force would pave the way for additional Imperial reinforcements by stabilizing and securing the astropathic choirs of the planet capitals and using them to create a small beacon that would act as a lighthouse in the storm-tossed warp. Who will prevail? The orc boss looking to reunite with his wall or start his own? The implacable Necrons waking up from their long sleep? The Drakari raiders seeking a rich harvest of souls to secure their salvation standing in the dark city? Or will the Imperium rally and drive away the threats at its door? Only time will tell. So there's our setting. What do you guys think? It's awesome. Sounds fun. <laughs> well, now that we have sort of the, the groundwork laid out, and I say groundwork because we have some planets here that I've created using the planetary empires, empire tiles. I'm just going to mix my words at the same time. But these here will act as our planets, and we will be marking territory. I'll take an overhead shot of these on top of a star map that I have, and I'll just be using my epic Photoshop skills to colorize the different tiles as they change hands so that everybody knows where you are. Does that all make sense? Yes, I yep. like it. Cool. Well, with the setting and the description of the tiles, I'll put up some photos for all of the people watching on YouTube right now. So just check your screen. I know normally just listening, you can see some cool pictures of what the planets are going to look like. But let's introduce our characters here. And I'd like to start with the Nautilus Rich, <laughs> who will be playing our Necrons. He has brought his overlord. He's woken up from his long nap. Rich, tell me a little bit about the warlord and his motivations. So my warlord, uh, is an overlord. His name is Asto, and he is from the Raitak dynasty. So, kind of what I'm what I'm picturing for his motivations and what I'm picturing for his uh, his reason for even being in this system. Most of the Raitak dynasty has been destroyed, whether it was through Eldar hunting parties, just random you know interactions with. You know, different humans, crusade forces, the Mechanicus, what, what have you. Most of the Ritech dynasty has been destroyed. And so he, coming out of a, a early wake-up, being one of the few overlords that woke up, has realized that most of his dynasty has been destroyed. His pharaoh has been destroyed. And he's found himself in this position where he can then take power and try to bring the Ritech dynasty back to its, its greatness. And so he's come into this sector of space in order to awaken the dormant tomb worlds and the different uh, legions that are still asleep and in tomb. Cool. So we talked in our in our first sort of discussion about crusade in general. We talked about how you're looking to for the for your fun get a bunch of titles added on to this guy to turn him into the despoiler of blah 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 and the the owner of noobs and the poner of <laughs> yes so that's the that's your player motivation what what do you hope to do with him as a as as you're role-playing as him when you're thinking about your strategy what, what do you think he's going to be doing first 
So my my kind of my thought process to to being him or taking his place is trying to awaken as many forces as absolutely possible in the in the shortest amount of time capable. He's trying to muster the largest force that he can that he can get out there uh, in order to start in the instance of these planets in the system, taking its, you know, all of its different resources, its materials, and helping to to rebuild its dynasty as well as hopefully take over some of the dynasties that are still slumbering. Kind of uh, turned into a new pariah nemesis almost. Kind of, kind of deal, yeah. And so my, my in essence, I mean, yes, I mean, who doesn't love titles? So, yes, I'd like him to get as many titles as possible. But my, my primary goal for him is, or for him and in turn my army is to get the largest legion possible that just won't go down. Okay. I'm I'm a big fan. When when the ninth edition uh, announcement video came out, I loved every bit of it. Watching the Necrons just get get destroyed, stand up, get destroyed, stand up. It was it was just awesome, and it just spoke to me. And I would really like to kind of almost recreate something to that extent. Awesome. Well, thank you. Orky Rich, uh, yours is a name that has come up on this show every episode, and now I can finally, finally have you speak up and talk about your wall and everything. I'm really happy to have you here. Rich drove an hour to come up and record this. Thank you very much for that. Tell us a little bit about Shaka Dirk and his motivations, what you'd like to do with him in Crusades, since you didn't get a chance to talk about that before, and just you know, unload. Awesome, Chris. I'm happy to be here. So the Chirac Far is the the uh, he's the warlord of my tribe, the Flaming Boneheads, and uh, he had a huge fleet that was moving to attack um, various targets. He was not. I have pages and pages of backstory about Chirac. I've had this character. I have eight versions of Chirac. I have stories how he became a war boss. He was a knob. So Chirac is not here. You're very lucky. Um, Shaka is one of the war bosses that follows Chirac. Shaka leads. Now, there's clans and tribes. Shaka leads the, uh, the Squealing Hides tribe. Uh, clan, sorry, clan, and they are evil sons. And uh, so he has some other um, minor clans that are also allied with him, but mostly he's, he, he's an evil son's war boss. And he, in the aftermath of their ship and its accompanying fleet um, being diverted in the warp, he killed a couple of the mechs that were in charge of that. So he does not have a mech to guide him to properly use the stolen warp drive that they have on their capital ship. So he needs to acquire scrap and also train up some new mechs since his anger was righteous and, uh, and proper. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to lose some of my mechs on your army. Um, yes. So, so Shaka is eager to train up some new mechs and to acquire a bunch of scrap. They do have a hold full of 
Rockfire, which is from Pyrrhic 3, which is the planet where Wachurok began. And it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful energy source that they use to fire their engines. So their ships are really fast, just they don't have the the mechs that they need to properly use the warp drives and the rock fire in combination without blowing everything up. So that's what we need to do. Shock has got to clobber some boys and, and get some boys thinking hard and putting their thinking caps on so that we can put together the scrap. And in the meantime, there's fighting to be done, and that always makes orcs happy. Yeah, just he needs to get some stress out after killing this mech. That's right. Making his life a little harder. That's it's right. all those mechs' fault, too, for making him kill them by being terrible. <laughs> That's right. And he had to feed him to the squigs, of course. Uh, of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Congratulations to both of you for restraining your laughter for as long as you did. <laughs> it's, I tried, man. I, I tried. That was just great. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So, Zach. Tell us a little bit about your character's story, his goals, what you'd like to do in in the game as him, and what you're hoping to how, how you're hoping to measure your progress of getting back into the Dark City. Okay, so I mean, uh, I'm going to be playing as Archon. Everybody's trying to say I just made it up. Oh. I read it. I just Serenariensis. I've had Ariensis. Sure, I've read it for. Since fifth edition, and just love this whole idea of this cabal. Basically, we've been banished from the Dark City because we botched a goo, and we're just looking to gather some more resources. I mean, he's rebuilt his uh, tattered fleet when they left the Dark City to now it's a full on threat to the Imperium, and he's looking to get some vengeance on the people that wronged him in the Dark City. So he's just here to collect souls, get stronger, and using the Crusade rules, just gain more territory in the Dark City. and take lots of slaves back. Yeah, because that's one of the interesting like, mechanics that we don't mm-hmm. see in our books that's in a Dark Elder book, for those who don't know, is that there is a sort of a, an escalating table of reputation that he keeps track of as part of his crusade so far as his standing in the Dark City goes. And I think you're starting like, right at the bottom. Right? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right have, yeah, we have no standing in the Dark City right now. In fact, we'd probably be murdered on, on site, so... I mean, you might be murdered on site anyway, but yeah, not 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 if you've got enough friends. We're, right we're on Vex's bad side right now, right? so I didn't. I don't think Vex has a good side. Let's be real. He's a he has a tolerable side. Those that he'll tolerate, I can accept that. <laughs> Take advantage of. Okay, that's yeah. probably better. Yeah, <laughs> are those he finds too useful to kill yet? There you go. That's that's better. Yet, <laughs> yet. So awesome. Well, that's cool. So I, uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun. Look, yeah. Give me an example of something that affects your army that comes from your standing in the dark city. So, like, uh, the, one of the first things is uh, toxin distilleries. If I have access to that in the dark city, my poison weapons become that much more lethal on the battlefield. Okay. So, basically, again, upgrades to stuff like that. So that's Very cool. One thing. But awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so I'll I'll talk about my warlord and, and kind of what we're what we're doing here. Obviously, there's going to be more H two characters for each armies. So hopefully, hopefully, yeah. What we're hoping to do, I mean, if we want to use a battalion detachment, we'll need at least two. But what we're hoping to do is create a a self insert a little bit with these characters who we're highlighting now, and of course, each of us will have our own supporting commanding cast. Now, what I've done with mine is I am self inserting as a librarian. Shocker, 
right? <laughs> Not a shocker. Shocker. <laughs> uh, it's it's no surprise to anybody. This is this is fantasy that I've played out since I started in 40k, well over 20 years ago. So I'm playing a regular librarian. He's not a Primaris librarian. And his name is Ratziel, which comes from an old Enochian book of angels. It's from mythology. He's basically the angel of magic from old Hebrew myth. Hmm. That's that's where a lot of like Azrael being the angel of death, like a lot of the angel names come from this sort of long list of angel names. I just borrowed that one. That's fine. Uh, so when I role play as a librarian, I pick that name because it makes sense. Angel of magic is a librarian. Blah, blah, blah. I'm very on the nose. What can I say? But his his company is headed by Captain uh, Galen Machiavi. And Machiavi is interesting because in some sources, he's already dead. But in some sources, he's alive. And he was the successor for Captain Tycho, who died in the Third War of Armageddon. Now, Good riddance. <laughs> yeah, we ruined all your fun, didn't we? <laughs> but uh, Tycho died in the Third War, and Machiavi was his successor. Now, in the Devastation of Ball book, Machiavi was one of the survivors at the end of station. However, in the Blood Angel Codex, he's not listed as the captain of the third company, which makes me wonder what happened to him. Commandos. <laughs> that may well be what happens to him, because for Machiavi, my captain, he's... I'm kind of planning on him dying during this campaign, and my librarian is one of his advisors, and I have a sort of succession story involving the Council of Bone and Blood, because whenever there's a leadership vacancy in the Blood Angels, the chaplains and the secondary priests get together and they decide who's going to be the next guy in charge. And normally that's done for the chapter master specifically, just to make sure they don't appoint someone who's immediately like the next day going to fall to the Black Rage. Because that <laughs> happened once and that didn't, that didn't end well for anybody, especially people who were wondering where they had a name change to Horus. But aside from that, this librarian character who I plan on playing is going to be going on a journey of, of transformation. I'm hoping to see him go through some loss as the captain changes, having some input on who's going to be in charge next, and have himself go through the Rubicon Primaris you know, to become a Primaris Marine and experiment with the, the, the buffs and benefits that come from that sort of transformation. And who knows, if he rolls bad enough on his injury table, he might end up as a librarian dreadnought. We'll see. I, I'm not planning on that, but that's something that could happen if he gets injured enough. Hmm. So that would that's kind of the journey that I want to take with 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 my character is he's kind of my story focuses on him where he feels like he's not the main story of his own campaign. That he's just following the orders of Captain Machiavi. Now the way that I built and hobbied my third company is that they have a lot of forest heresy armor and bits and things incorporated into them because I love that. I love that game period. I'm bringing in a lot of those themes because after the devastation, what they had to do was raid a bunch of their old forgotten storehouses for ancient weapons and armor. And I want to, as I'm equipping my characters, I want to pull on those old relics, those heresy style relics and kind of really lean into that we're sad about our past look and feel to how the equipment and, and the army stuff goes. Hmm. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to do with mine. And I hope that it works out. I am very excited to have a, a librarian count level up as it were. I remember I, I made a story, a, a story about this. We talked about this on our first episode 
where my original librarian would just deck him out all this crazy <laughs> stuff. Just throw all those random stuff on Ah, uh, good old editions. And I, I loved every moment of it, but there, he, he was just so soft, you know? He had two wounds, and I remember throwing him at the Nightbringer once back in third edition. That didn't do well. <laughs> but, you know, because I, I had spent like 200 points on this two wound librarian, and I was like, I'm going to use my horse weapon, and I'm going to kill it into death because I'm young and stupid. And uh, uh, turns out, yeah, I died. He just kind of flicked me away. But it was worth a try. Oh, man, instant death. There's a rule I do not oh, miss. That, that can, I kind of miss that. I don't. But that that was the bane of my both of my army's existence. No, if you were fortunate enough to have an army that had a lot of it, it was great. But if you had a, an army that was vulnerable to it, it kind of sucked. It could have worked, which I kind of feel like transhuman physiology has become that for that condition. That's its own topic, I guess. But like everybody gets a transhuman. We've got Oprah in Games Workshop just throwing out transhuman physiology to everyone. You get a only wound on a four. Yes, I do. You yeah. only get a wound on <clears throat> only. Anyway, everybody's a primary sword and nobody's a primary sword. It's only on my vehicles. It's they changed my quantum shielding to just always having transhuman. That's 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 where I got it. I got it on things that no one takes because it's not worthy. So uh do we have any questions for each other about your armies and things? Like is there anything that you that we want to ask each other before we start talking a little bit about some of the, the rules we're gonna do? So small, small uh ask or request really. So, based off of the the motivations, Rich, of your of your army trying to just grab whatever metal, whatever things you can do in some of our larger battles, if we lose, and I'm using uh, wraiths after after each battle, you know, you've got the tables to see what happens, you know, the scars and whatnot. I'm thinking that depending on if I get the right scars, I'm actually kind of wanting to build a like a war bike or or a mech out of just my Necron bits for you, just so you can have, so we can, if we were going to take photos of this, we can have, you know, <laughs> a couple of orcified, you know, things from the, uh, the losses of the Necron army. That sounds super fun. I have a, I, yeah, I have a 30 years of bit. So whatever you need, let me know. <laughs> oh, this is, oh, I always want to go lose now. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Like if, if we, that could be something fun that we do is that as we reward each other for fun or for interest in games and things that we can open up our bits boxes and hand out some, some trophies to each other as ways of commemorating. Because Crusade encourages you to build and expand your and customize your models as you start telling their story. Like my, my librarian over there, he's already fairly unique and customized, but he's obviously not a Primaris Marine. Now, I, have a model in mind to convert from Primaris to, to, to make a new him as I get ready to, to make that transition. That that also incentivizes me to, to try and do well to accomplish my, my crusade goals, my agendas. It's not secondaries, we have our agendas. So I'm gonna try and accomplish those so that he can so I so I can do the things that I want to. And then it incentivizes me to create a character, a new character model. That I can play with, and I can be like, I'll always have that story, right? How he was made and why he was made. Exactly, Chris. I'm doing a similar thing. So I've got my my great conversion of of Shaka on his beast boss. So he's a beast boss on a Squigasaur, but I'm doing a conversion, and I've talked to Chris about this for the campaign, where I will have Shaka on foot. 
So I don't have a Beast Boss model. It's not even available yet, but I'm making a Beast Boss Shaka on foot. That'll be, I'll run him as a Beast Boss when he's on foot. So that'll be a lot of fun. That'll be cool. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I talked to Rich about a little bit before you guys got here, but there's lots of different versions of the same data sheet, at least in my book and his book. I think to some extent for you guys as well. Not as much for you, I don't think, because you don't really have like an arc home on a bike, right? No, not since fifth edition. Not, not yeah, it's, it's been a minute. For a while, right? Unless there's something in Legends for you, which, by the way, I'm totally open to the Legends as long as we talk about it first, right? Because this is a match play, we can have fun with it. That's right. But Do you have anything that's been Legend as opposed to locking down a character like let's use my librarian for example, like Rich was talking about the tool boss. There's librarians. There's Terminator. There's Phobos armor, Primaris librarians. There's if if we operated in Crusade the way it's written in the rulebook, I'd have to like remove my data sheet from my librarian and replace it with a new data sheet. We're gonna just kind of not worry about that I, for this campaign because it's the same person. We're just putting in different armor. We'll just pay the, the appropriate power level cost. Yeah, just just get pay the adjustment and move on. Yeah. Uh, and that can change between games, and that will work for, for everybody. Another thing that we wanted to do is in this rearm and resupply requisition, so far as the house rule goes, it says you cannot replace a weapon that a model is equipped with if the weapon in question has been upgraded by a weapon. So rearm and resupply lets you change your unit loadouts, but if you customize them at all, you can't change them anymore. And I feel like that's unnecessarily restrictive because one of, one of the things that we don't do in tournaments, right, is we can't list it. We have to kind of guess the field and bring something that we feel will do the best against the field in general. We will yeah. know who we're fighting. And so I feel like list tailoring is going to be kind of encouraged. Well, it just kind of makes sense. If I know I'm going to go up, a, you know, into battle against a, you know, blood angel, I'm, I'm not going to bring something that, you know, gives me 20 attacks, but it has no rend. I'm going to do something, you know, I'm going to use my strongest power weapon I possibly can that gives me all the rends so I can get through the the, the power armor that you're wearing. What is this rend you're talking about? Sorry! Addition I is hard. Okay, AP. Rend equals AP. I'm sorry. I know what you mean. I know, I'm just kidding with that. I love it. So, right, I actually encourage everybody to list handling to bring something within of course you still have to have the unit right of course of course and you still have to play the uh the requisition if you want to change your loadout that's not changing but the idea that if you jury rig a really cool shooter that if you change that shooter to another thing you lose it or you can't change it all because you customized it just keep track of it yourself we're going to trust you to do that this is something that we're trying to do to kind of focus on the plot does that make sense Hmm? Yes. Yeah. All, all, all for it. Yeah. So one of the concepts in this campaign is escalation. Now we have all four of us here together. Now it took some coordinating to get that to happen, <laughs> as as happens with people who have lives that live relatively far away from each other, depending on where one is living and when, and depending on how long this goes. Some of us may move. Some of us may do other things. So each True. round campaign we're not going to be getting all four of us together but we will be doing that when we hit what's called the escalation phase so each round 
quote, we will have where we submit our orders, we, we call out our opponents, and then we are free to arrange games between each other as those two players are available to play with each other. We don't need to wait for all four of us to be there. We just report the results in our group chat that we created for this campaign, and we keep track on our own of our of all of our bookkeeping stuff. But I want everyone to feel as free as possible to make arrangements that work for themselves without having to worry about, well, we have, we can only do it when everybody's there. And we'll, we'll share locations as well. Right now, we're, we're at my place, but if Rich wants to host one or if we want to meet at a game store, that works too. So, and I'll just be reporting on things in the show as, as they happen. But uh, does, does that sound like a course for everyone? Do you like that? Like yeah. That. Yeah, no, I'm fine with that. I'm fine oh, with that. That's great. And then every third round, after, after the end of the third round, we go into an escalation. An escalation is where the number of ships we can play in fleet battles goes up. The number of fire teams we can play in kill team goes up. It's, it's basically our forces have built enough momentum that resources are coming in. We're able to deploy more fleets. We don't have to be as conservative. That also gives us room to practice with those rules and get used to them before we start getting the bigger ships that are more complicated or the more advanced rules that we're not quite familiar enough with the game yet to understand so far the kill team and, and the, the full thrust space battles go. When we hit an escalation, that's when we're also checking score. And I laid out how you accrue points in the mission pack. You guys will all be able to see that. But more or less, different tiles award different victory points. Now the victory points when we hit an escalation thing are only there to determine who's going to be making the four minute scenario next. So if you are ahead in points, that means that you're creating a custom scenario for everybody to play. Ooh. So for example, to start us off, when we set our first game round, which will be after this, we'll be doing a space battle. And this and since I'm kind of GMing, I'm coming up with the space battle rules that we'll all play together. And full thrust works really well for this because everything's done simultaneously and we don't have to wait for someone to finish a turn before going around. So everybody moves at the same time, everybody shoots at the same time. But the scenario is going to be a lost cargo fleet has appeared in the system, has a bunch of resources that all of us need to get our campaigns going. So each one of these ships is going to be worth an extra requisition point to whoever blows it up. At the same time, there's going to be four fleets on the table at the same time. Do you want to focus your, your attention on preventing others from being able to kill by destroying their ships? But by doing so, reducing the chance that you get to finish off a ship? Or do you want to focus everything you have on getting those those transport ships destroyed, maximize your points, but risk getting shot off the table because you're not paying enough attention to it? So that's going to be the opening scenario that's going to kick off our campaign. Oh, that's going to be fun. I'm yeah, I dig that. A nice free for all at the very start. Right? That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds like a blast. And it'll be a good intro to the full thrust rules for everybody too. I imagine by around like by the third movement phase, everybody will have it down. Very simple. But that's going to be our opening to it, and then after that, we'll start our first game round where we'll be initiating combat with with each other, following the rules that are in the packet. I won't read the whole packet out loud here for everybody so that they die for boredom but uh <laughs> you guys have access to that you'll be you can if you have any questions on it if anything needs to be clarified this is a living rule set it's not set in stone if something's not working or confusing 
we can change it so that it works better. Sound good? I like it. Sounds great. Yep. Cool. So, any uh, any other questions about sort of the getting everyone together every three every three turns to do a, a mega scenario? Yeah. No. No objections here. Uh, while while I think it would be fun to do that all together in a Warhammer 40k tabletop game, that would be an all day thing with four people. It might be better to plan cool kill team operations that everybody can play in at the same time, or do space battles because that's a little bit more manageable to start with until we get kind of our our sea legs. So to speak. I, say, I, I foresee an apocalypse game in our future. Oh, <laughs> if, if we don't have an apocalypse game, yes, 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 we're yes. doing this wrong. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even want to guess how many points Rich has. I know I have probably at least 15,000 points of blood in my brain. 25,000 painted. Yeah. Hey, you got me beat on the painted part, but I have about 10,000 points in, in Necron. We won't talk about the unpainted. <laughs> Next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> wall of shame. I'm feeling much better about my pile of shame. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to kind of figure out going along with the logistics and stuff is that we all unveil our orders at the same time. There's a possibility that one player is going to get picked on by more than one other player, which honestly is fine. So far as the campaign goes, the more games you play in the crusade, the more experience your army gets. However, we're trying to keep one round going every month so that as the next month rolls over, we can get, you know, we can keep the campaign moving so it doesn't stagnate. That's like the bane of every D&D campaign, the bane of every narrative game experience is at the, we, we don't know when the next one's going to be. We forget to talk about it. Life happens. And then all of a sudden, you know, two years later, like, man, we really need to get back to playing. Yeah. Whatever happened to that game? Yeah. yeah. So. It can be very challenging to play three games in a month for, for someone. So how do we want to acknowledge that challenge, still try and get games in and kind of give priority? I had an idea of if there's one player who's got all three against them, that the three roll off and the winner of you know, the D6 roll off fights that player and the other two fight each other because they intercept each other on the way to the the other player. Hmm. They're chasing that third army and they interact because they're all in the same area. Hmm. Well, that's that makes sense. sense. So does that, does that sound like it's good or do we want to try? I suppose we could always leave it up to each time it happens, that person's availability to be like, you know what, this month I could actually maybe fit into it. I would also, Chris, I would also suggest that we agree to, for story purposes, kind of Make sure we bow to the GM's discretion if there's a cool story reason why maybe Rich's Necrons intercept Chris's Blood Angels instead of my Orcs or the Dark Eldar. That, that, that's one thing as a longtime DM, longer DM than 40K player. Sure. It's when you, when you trust the GM to make the story better, then everybody is usually happy. So as long as we, we just like say, sometimes Chris is just going to say, no, I'm not rolling. This is better for the story. This sounds like more fun. Yeah, I like think that that would be that would be something we all have to just say. Yeah, just Chris, whatever. It can be random, but if there's a reason for it to be just story element, I think that's we trust the GM. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think hundred percent. Well, I will try to use that responsibility with responsibility. power. <laughs> <laughs> there's two. Yeah. Well. 
it's, it's actually funny that you bring this up, Rich, because uh, in the D&D game that me and Zach are in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's happening to my donkey? You, you, will, never, you will not know until it happens. <laughs> um, so I am I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let the audience just, let them just wonder about that. You know, so I'm, I'm actually the DM for the, for the game. And I, I completely agree with what you're saying because there are certain times where you can just, you know, tweak things or tweak the story and it just fits better, flows better. Something that I do in my games is I use something called an action deck. It allows the players to then interact with my story forcibly. And it forces me as the DM to try to adapt. And I, I don't know, I have a lot of fun. There's a card in it called Campaign. So they can make the most random, useless thing in the world now be part of my key my my story arc that i'm going for and it's it's a lot of fun so i'm i'm a hundred percent with you like if you can give us any kind of narrative reason i'm fine with it let's do it now that's i'm I'm glad you brought that up rookie rich because we i'm the war boss you're the war boss (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna get old yeah well i mean you are the (laughs) oldest one here Just throwing that out there. Yes, yeah, by far. <laughs> that said, uh, establishing you know the hierarchy when a, when the when someone who is GMing is a player, there's always that concern of conflict of interest. But I want you guys to know that if you're ever concerned about anything, or if you feel like something's unfair, or or if if there's something that involves me that needs outside arbitration, I'm totally down for that. I got I've got nothing to prove with this except that we can all have. As long as your guys don't all of a sudden show up with virus grenades, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think that's in the crusade rules. I don't, maybe I should write that. <laughs> I'm just going mm, to sneak that in there. That would, that would tie into the theme of my home blasters. Right? <laughs> that was an old second edition rule. Oh, that speaking of horrible, that was truly horrible. Uh, well, if you hear a bell ring, that's uh, that's my cat Sudoku, the six fingered who's making his presence known. He's the doggest cat I ever did see. So, thank you, Doug, for sharing your opinion. But uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's fun. So we'll, we will plan on that being our first scenario. That we'll all get together. The, the hobby projects that we have, so far as a pain standard goes, we're looking for bell ring, and that includes for ships and things. It doesn't have to look like it's going to be in White Wolf magazine, okay? I just want to be able to take cool pictures from three feet away and have people, ooh, look, you few spaceships or you know, models. I want models to be, I don't want them to stand out for being unpainted when I'm taking army photos as we're, as we're updating things. No gray plastic. No gray plastic. I'm totally down with that. Unless that's like, let's, let's say that, uh, it's a gray statue. Then even then you're painting gray. <laughs> ah, but yeah, just a general hobby standard for all of us, uh, to make the, contribution of time that everybody's doing more respected mm-hmm. and everything that we paint is something that we can still use in other formats too that's right so mm-hmm. I, it's a win-win and painting can be very very good so i think that covers most of the the normal problems or or i guess to-do list housekeeping items for the campaign i'd like to open it up for any extra questions or ideas that you guys have and then we can go from there. What do you think? Any questions? I was going to say, the, the, the only one that I had, we already addressed. So. There we go. I, I guess the only question I have is, what format are we playing first? Or did you already 
Oh, that's true. Out of the three rounds, besides yeah. besides, the, so we have the full full thrust game, mega game, yeah, mega yeah. game, yep, to which is off. yep the the start of round one, and then we have the three games before we go to the second round. Mm-hmm. What are the three games? That will depend on on who has the the attack priority. So if you look in the, in the game packet, you'll see that when you are initiating an attack against another player you will play a token. And there are pitched battle tokens, which are for just regular games of 40k. And we'll all need to build a list of at least 50 power level. I thought it was 25 to start, but it's 50 power level to start. Mm-hmm. So that was my mistake from earlier. But I think I think 50 is doable for all of us. <laughs> but a pitch battle would be a, a game of, of Warhammer 40k, just like a normal game. You can also initiate a special operation. So a special operation would be like a kill team pitch battle. So that's something that the attacker in that situation decides, how am I attacking this person? I'm infiltrating them with my kill team. Or I'm trying to go after their fleet assets. Or I'm looking for an all an all out pitch battle. So those are things for those rounds that you will decide. And then for the escalation rounds where we are all getting together, whoever is in first place, whoever has the most points will decide which kind of game. From those, from those previous three games. And I encourage you to come up with scenarios. So that means we don't have to set it up, like set up a map that's match play. You can set up a, a, an ambush, a trap. You literally just build the scenario. We, all the rest of us, just show up and then we see what happens. And the outcome, we're, we're not going to be worrying about victory points there because this is all just your opportunity to be like, I, I am leading right now. You are all falling into my trap. Or you were all playing the game as I'm dictating it. It's it's kind of the flex before the next round starts, and it's also a way to show appreciation to the other players by showing them a good time with your own scenario. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Hopefully that hopefully that's a good and useful philosophy. For I like it. For it, it encourages everybody to think about what would be fun for everyone. Then at the end, when we decide that we're done, because we'll we'll escalate to a certain point, and then. When we decide, you know what, I think we've, we've told the stories that we're all going, that we wanted to tell. I'd like to try something new, maybe do a crusade with my gray knights or something like that. Right. Then we can, we can say, all right, let's wrap it up. We'll have our big final send off and we'll be done. And then we can either start something new or just take from the experience everything that we got and go forward enjoying the fact that we, I mean, I'm hoping we'll all be better friends. We're already all pretty good gaming friends at this point. <laughs> we'll be better friends. We'll always have this experience. Remember that time that Chuck and Dirt got you know, blasted off the table by an orbital bombardment or like, yeah. Pretty really a horrible way to go. Or that time Chuck and Dirt just died from embarrassment because he lost so many games. <laughs> 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 that time his attack squig killed your chaplain. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's definitely what happened. Like, when the overlord got shot by a grot and failed his save. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for coming and doing this and letting me record it so that we can hopefully entertain the masses with it. I'm really looking forward to round one. We'll we'll set up a date and time for all of us to get together for the full thrust match. Uh, and maybe we can do it at a store. I could certainly reserve the basement space at Gejo and we could try and work it out. You know, if we have enough lead time that everybody can get there full thrust place pretty quickly we can we could probably do it on a weeknight but if we wanted to do it on a saturday that everybody has off depending on availability
ability. We'll work that all out in the chat, but I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys all enjoy the scenario. I'll get some photos of all of our miniatures to put up so for people to see uh, so far as our warlords and the progress and stuff. Just tell a fun story. That that actually did remind me of something. Oh, oh sorry. Oh, no. No, you're good. This is good. <laughs> okay. No, that, so that actually did remind me of something. So a lot of these games that we're going to be playing, these these additional uh, round or uh, excuse me games in between the different rounds, the escalation rounds. Uh, I think it would be a lot of fun. I mean, and everyone can you know you're welcome to do this or decide if you don't want to. But I think it would be a lot of fun if we could just put not not battle report is not the right term. If we could put down like what happens. So if me and Rich play or me and Zach play. Oh yeah, definitely. Then, the cool then, yeah, I would like to. I'd like to be able to, you know, put. Hey, you know, this kill team happened, and you, you know, this kill team game happened, and you, you know, my guys killed his guys. But you know, trying to put something together. It's especially awesome if you get it from both perspectives. Exactly. Yeah, and if you can write it up in character of one of your characters, it's even better. Yeah, God, character and perspective. If yeah, you can do it that night while it's fresh. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be long. You don't have to write a novel about it. But if you just want to point out a moment that I can dramatically put it on the show or something or, or whatever, that would be really fun. I think that's a great idea. Okay. That, that, that was my only additional thought that I had forgotten earlier. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will work on getting the, the packet nice and pretty. Right now, it's just a bunch of word salad. Some stuff's bolded, and I have it all properly sectioned out. But all of the fancy graphic design stuff. It's not done. Anyway, thank you guys again. I look forward to playing with all. It's going to be fun. Can't wait. Cheers. Hey, hey, tough luck tonight, buddy. Yeah, tough new hotness, more like it. <laughs> sure, pal. Same time next week? Sure. See ya. <sighs> what am I gonna do about the new hotness? Commando, we need to talk. Yeah, Kato Sicarius. No, it is I, Robute Gilliman, and we need to talk about your performance tonight. Aw, oh, come on, Robute. He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. But, Robute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bro, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, uh, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's woodcut with lasguns or something. It's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, aliens, and more. But I hate painting terrain. It's boring. Never fear. Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some. But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www.frontlinegaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, 
and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force commander? Not now, commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.frontlinegaming.org. Tell them the chief librarian sent you. Welcome, welcome to Librarius and to this special segment where we actually do something that seems like it should be related to something named Librarius, and that would be talking about books. I've been thinking about doing book reviews on this show since I started it, and one of the things that was holding me back was that I wanted to make sure that I was doing the reviews on something that I had freshly read as opposed to going through a bunch of the old stuff that I'd read before and maybe written about a little bit and just kind of retreading old ground. So I was very excited to get my hands on a couple of new audiobooks, and I powered through both of them during the work week this week. Now, the first one is The Infinite and the Divine by Robert Rath, narrated by Richard Reed, who did a good job. Now, I love, 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 love the experience of sitting in a comfortable chair with a light, my favorite drink, and reading a novel. Most of the time now, I only have time to do audiobooks. And this started when I was in college, while I was getting my technical writing degree, and I was working essentially two jobs, as well as going to school full-time, and I just didn't have time to sit and read the massive reading lists for the four upper level college literature classes that I had to take as part of my degree. So I picked up Audible. I started a subscription and I started listening to those books on audiobook while I work. And it's something that I've gotten kind of addicted to since then. I know a lot of people talk about having a difficult time concentrating or staying awake. I seem to be okay. I seem to do all right with it. That isn't to say that I remember every single thing that I hear, but even when I'm sitting down and reading, sometimes I miss something the first time through. But I do really enjoy the narration on some of these audiobooks. I particularly like audio dramas, and I really recommend Audible. And getting the free, quote-unquote, book per month, the book credit per month on Audible was a really cost-efficient way of doing that because there are times where I'm just kind of oversaturated with content to listen to, whether it's podcasts or whatever. And then I would just leave my subscription active and then I would build up a bunch of credits on Audible. And then as soon as I heard about a new series that I wanted to read or get a book recommendation from somebody like Infinite and the Divine was, I can just zip, get it. So that's what I did. So we'll be talking about the Infinite and the Divine a little bit. I'm going to give you the spoiler warning right now for this one and the other book. Just if it is something that you're worried about, I do talk spoilers. And that's not to ruin anybody's fun. It's just that there are certain things, the kind of analysis that I want to do on these books and the type of character development and things that I want to talk about, you can't really talk about vaguely without it being just really boring. That's one of the most frustrating things about book review podcasts is that when you're not willing to talk about the things that happen... It just really makes the conversation this gray area of word salad. 
While I will be talking about things that happen in the infinite and the divine, I am not going to be egregiously spoiling and reading the entire thing out loud for everybody, but I will select a couple of interesting points about the book and speak about it in that respect. Additionally, I will be talking about the Fury of Magnus, which is part of the Siege of Terra series. It's one of the shorter books. It's not one of the, the main 10, I guess you could say. Boy, I tell you, when Forge World said that they were going to be doing just 10 books for the Siege of Terra and maybe a spitter spattering of a few different novellas and things, I knew in my heart of hearts that there was going to be just a ton of little stories here and there that I'm going to miss. And Fury of Magnus somehow slipped under my radar until this week, so I got it. And I have feelings and opinions, and you're going to hear them, unless you turn this off, in which case you won't hear them. But that would be sad, so don't do that. So those are the two books I'm going to talk about in this segment. If you have not read them and you are worried about spoilers, last chance, I'm going to get into it as soon as this sentence is over. So far as the infinite and the divine is concerned, I heard universally good things about this book from pretty much everybody who's talked about it. So there was a little bit of hype that was built up behind it. And I feel like the book itself mostly justified that hype. And generally speaking, while I'm pretty savvy on a lot of the aspects of 40k lore, I specialize quite a bit on Space Marines, Imperium, Inquisition, those sorts of stories. I don't have a huge Xenos repertoire when it comes to reading novels and things outside of codexes. And when I first started playing against Necrons early, early in my gaming career, that was back in 3rd edition. And that was back when the Catan were real star gods that they had been unleashed. You know, there was the Deceiver who had been active in the universe for quite some time. And then there was the Nightbringer. The Nightbringer was unleashed by Uriel Ventress in one of the novels. And at a certain point, the Necron lore got a huge overhaul. And what that overhaul did was provide a lot more character to these machine men. It leaned quite a bit more into the Egyptian theme, you know, cyber Egyptians in space. But for collectors of the Necron army, it actually gave them a little bit more leeway to role play within their own faction. Because every overlord, instead of just being this sinister automaton, leader of automatons, unknowable, mysterious, and sinister, overlords and lords and the entire Necron pantheon underwent a pretty big change. I have mixed feelings on this. And I carry those mixed feelings into starting this book. The reason for that is I found Necrons to be much more terrifying the less I knew about them. There was this very interesting lore about them fighting the Eldar back in the war in heaven and how they had gone to sleep, basically. And the Eldar thought that they had won. And it was one of those sort of Bane versus Batman, victory has defeated you kind of arcs. But with the Deceiver staying active, watching the Eldar fall, and then from there going on to destroy all of the weapons that the Eldar could have used to kill a Catan, it made the Deceiver a much more active part of the Warhammer universe. And I felt like he still had quite a bit of character. 
It made the Nightbringer much more terrifying, and it made the Necrons much more terrifying in general because they were relentless automatons. They didn't really have personalities. They didn't really have anything that you could identify with. So that's, that's sort of the thing that I liked about Necrons at the time. Obviously, the new lore lost all of that. And the question that I've been asking myself since then is, did what the Necrons gained outweigh what the Necrons lost? And I think this book answers that question. And the answer ended up being yes for me after reading this. Now, for my own force of Necrons, were I ever to start an army, I would probably lean a lot more on the old lore myself by picking and creating my own sort of sub-dynasty that would channel a little bit more of that relentless dead energy, and it would focus on the Catan a bit more, probably most particularly the Deceiver, because I he's kind of my favorite, or he was, but to have a sub-faction of the Necrons who have basically owned the fact that they're never going to have their bodies back, and instead of fighting against it, they're now embracing the future that they have going forward instead of dwelling on the past. And I feel like that's a bit of a subversion of the normal Necron narrative, and that narrative is very prevalent in this book. So the name of the book, The Infinite and the Divine, comes from the titles of two of the Necron hero characters that you can buy models for and play out of the Codex. There's Traz and the Infinite and Auric and the Diviner. And they are set up in this novel as arch rivals. And right from the get-go, you can see clearly that they see the universe through completely different lenses. And they're set up quite well as antagonists for each other. You have Trazin, who is focused on the past, who is obsessed with what is lost through the passage of time. He feels like he is serving the Empire, quote-unquote, by maintaining his huge museum and showing everything that they had in the past, everything that happened while they were sleeping, and serving his people by preserving their ancient history, that that's what makes them Necrons, because they don't have their bodies anymore, but something in him yearns for the flesh. And in the meantime, Orokin the Diviner is focused completely on the future. He sees these metal bodies as transitionary points, that looking back to the past and trying to get the flesh back is the wrong answer, but instead they should try to transcend their physical bodies even more than just the metal can, and become beings of light, not unlike the Catan. And both of them had some serious history with the Catan. Both of them hate the Catan. Both of them were involved in the plan to sunder the Catan. But by waking up early from the great sleep, they have had all this time to stew on their choices. And one of the, the biggest things that this novel emphasizes, and I think that this is one of the greatest strengths of the characterizations of both of these characters and the Necrons as a faction in their modern lore, is how despite the passage of time, they seem stuck. They are incapable of overcoming their own personal foibles. It is as if when they gave up the ability to age, so to speak, by transitioning to a metal body, they also lost the capacity for personal development and growth. And Robert Rath does a really good job of hammering this point home, but he does it with, you know, 
let's say a rubber mallet. It's not a bang, bang, bang. It's a thump, thump, thump that builds up over the course of the book. Little things about the Necrons, little criticisms, little one lines that Trazin in his inner monologues say, or that Oregon in his angry ravings complains about the Necrons and how stuck they are in their hierarchical society. And despite how they hate each other for their different perspectives, they are blissfully unaware of how they themselves embody that very thing that they complain about. Now, the story begins on a maiden world. And we talked a little bit about maiden worlds in last episode where we talked about world spirits. There is a world spirit on this one. And obtaining the power of this world spirit is sort of the kickoff to the novel where Trazin is going down to this maiden world. He is trying to get this powerful stone that contains this essence. It's an artifact that's as old as the War of Heaven. So it's about as old as he is. He recognizes that. So of course he needs to have it. And one of the things that wasn't very clear to me when I was listening to it was when exactly in the timeline this was. And as it turns out, it's pre-Crusade so far as the human history timeline of Warhammer is concerned. So that wasn't very clear on the audiobook version. I'm not sure if the dates and the times are listed out in the chapter headings of the novelization, though I'd be interested to know. So Trazin goes in, he wants to get the thing, the Exodites don't want him to have the thing because they say they need the thing, and he does his Trazin thing and puts them all in a little box to put them on display somewhere and goes back to his gallery. And in a very, very, very subtle way, Robert Rath sets the stage for what is going to be one of the, I guess you could say, the main characters of the story is this planet. Because throughout the story, these characters will continually return to this planet. Now, once Trazin gets back to his gallery, shenanigans ensue. He investigates those shenanigans. And of course, this is where we meet his personal antagonist. Orkin the Diviner, and you get in this very beautiful scene a demonstration of their own particular strengths and weaknesses and how they use those against each other. This is the part of the novel where you really have to hammer home to the reader, this is, this is the real conflict. The fighting with Exodites on the planet, getting the artifact, that's background noise. What this is really about is the contest between these two characters. As you can expect, there are action scenes and there are personal contests between these characters. But I will say the one thing I wasn't expecting that was coincidentally the part where I was listening to this audiobook on a long drive with my wife in the car listening was the politicking. It was hilariously tragic that the segment of this book that didn't have space elves riding dinosaurs, my wife loves dinosaurs, and the part that she was listening to, those things didn't line up. No, she got a nice long story time of Necrons in court arguing procedure and precedent and all of the politicking, the ranks, the humming, the hawing, the show trials, the fakeness, the bias. And that was a little bit too close to home for us because we just got out of a legal battle. <laughs> so while I will say that wasn't my most favorite part of the book, nonetheless, it gave the reader a chance to slow down and engage a little bit more with Necron macro culture, as opposed to how these characters operate within that culture. 
not necessarily just in opposition to that, they are constantly in opposition to their own set of rules and guidelines. And that is important character development for them. And that time is necessary. The author, when you're writing a story like this, you have to provide the context for the world that these people exist in. And especially with an alien race, and this is one of the weaknesses, I think, of Xenos lore. Now, I say weaknesses only because, fundamentally, we cannot understand an alien perspective because the words that we use to describe that perspective are rooted in our own understanding of the world. We can describe how they use sensors and the magic, I mean science, behind all of their technology. But when we understand Necron dynasties, we are automatically called back to references within cultures that have actually existed and this is so ingrained into all of our experiences with alien factions that outside of things like the Tyranids, which call upon a primal fear of the beast, basically, that little animal part of our brain that is afraid of being eaten, nevertheless, even visually, we cannot escape from the fact that the Necrons are designed to be space Egyptian robots. The nuances of their politics are firmly rooted in our own satirical understanding of legal systems in our world. For all intents and purposes, Necrons, Eldar, Tau, they're people like us. And that's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because then we can talk about it, we can engage with them, we can relate to these characters, we can assign them archetypes that we understand, but fundamentally... They are still really people when you get down to it. So perhaps it's unfair to me to say that this is a Xenos lore issue. It is probably more of a human ability to cognitively describe things that we can't conceptualize outside of our own experience and history. And I don't really have an, a, a solution for that sort of problem, but I just like to acknowledge that it exists it helps me relate a little bit more to the characters in the story because really there isn't a single thing that they do or say or conceive of that I couldn't also see a human character do. And that's perhaps why I romanticize a little bit about the older lore of the Necrons, the unknowable nature of it. The terror was more real because you couldn't articulate it. Nevertheless, you couldn't engage with it either. And this book really lets you engage with these characters. Now, I would describe Trazin as sort of a kleptomaniac Indiana Jones. Incredibly brilliant and gifted, using all of those talents solely to pursue his own vision and reality. He has no qualms lying, stealing, torturing, subverting the will of people who are Necrons or humans or whoever. He is fully willing to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. And he is so arrogant because he is constantly justifying himself and the superior nature of himself, his species, even as he maliciously and often illegally uses them to accomplish his goals. And you gain a sense, sort of an implication, that the rest of the Necron race is a lot like him. And by the rest of the Necron race, I mean 
the lords and the overlords who still have their own sort of willpower, their own ability to decide their own fates. They have a very clear set of rules that they constantly use as double standards to position themselves in a power structure and a hierarchy that defeats their rivals and sees their own success. This is Court Intrigue 101. It's nothing that goes beyond anything you would read, even in something like The Three Musketeers. And on the other side of it is Orokin the Diviner. Now, he's a character who I knew absolutely nothing about before I started reading this book. And while I liked Trazin's personality better, I liked Orokin's characterization a little bit more, if that makes sense. Orokin has a little bit of what I call the Magnus the Red wizard problem. You see it in these characters who wield otherworldly mystical powers, and let's be real, the science of the Necrons is basically just magic with a science sticker on it. But Orokin is just too knowledgeable and too good at what he does. There are tons of wizard archetype characters across multiple genres. And this sort of smart person who is too smart for his own good, who's frustrated with how slowly everybody else around him operates, there's some Tony Stark in there, there's some Saruman in there, there's some Magnus the Red in there. There's some Illidan the Betrayer in there. If only everyone would listen to me or would have listened to me, would have seen it my way, they would have known that I was right all along. That's Oregon's personality. Add a touch of rage and anger, and I told you so, from the deception the entire Necron race bought into, where the Catan harvested their souls by doing the biotransference, transferring the flesh into metal, and then Orokin saw it coming, but nobody would listen to him. He's one of the most resentful characters I can think of that I've read recently, and he has good reason for it. Nevertheless, he's a complete tool about it. He treats everyone like garbage. He has no scruples and morals, no more than Trazin or anyone else. He's deviously brilliant, and he resembles the Deceiver a little bit more, I think, than he would like to admit to himself. That's my take on his characterization. And so you put these two characters in opposition to each other. Yes, they're part of the same race, but they're basically pursuing a goal against each other, both with an idea of what they want to do with it. And this goal is two oxymoronic objectives wrapped in one. They are looking for the tomb of a Necron overlord from ages past who defied the Catan and went to war against them to stop the biotransference, failed, was killed, but his perfect body was preserved in a stasis tomb and hidden away. Now, for someone like Trazin, who is looking at the past as a way to view the future, here is the opportunity to find a perfect blemished specimen of the Necron body. This is exactly the sort of thing that their scientists and flesh crafters could use to perhaps get their souls back. And even if they weren't able to do that, it is the last living example of what a Necron looked like before biotransference because they all forgot what even their race looked like. And once the Catan took their souls away, all of their art, all of their artifacts, everything, 
that could remind them of what they were was taken away from them at the same time. And that, to Trazin, is a complete catastrophe of culture. It adds to the tragedy of the Necron race. And Orokin is seeking this body because this person, this Necron overlord of the past, seemed to be able to not take any damage because he could project himself as a form of light to fight his opponents in duels. And that's why his body was preserved so well. The ritualistic honor duels and killings and things that they would do in their culture never affected him because he could always put a light-based proxy in. So here you have two impossible things, right? You have two goals. You have Trazin's goal to go back to the past to restore the flesh, and you have Orokin's goal to pursue a future as existences of light, and both are wrapped up in the same person. Now that should be the first clue that maybe this is a little bit too good to be true. And yet they are so single-mindedly focused on their overarching goal to accomplish this desire that they have, that they don't ever stop to think that this might not be what it seems. And Robert does an excellent job, in my opinion, of taking these ideas and stretching them out over the course of the book. Now, the timeline of this book, it starts before the Horus Heresy and goes, by the end of the book, you're into the post-Indomitus Crusade era. This maiden world goes from maiden world to a defiled maiden world to a human-settled world to a orc-invaded human-settled world to a planetary husk destroyed by Exterminatus. And you get to see every stage of this planet's change over a 10,000 plus year period. And one of the things that I like the most about it is that this planet, while setting a very important stage, it's not just a background thing that doesn't matter. Every era that you visit this planet in matters and has a place at the very ending of the book. And I think that that was executed extremely well. It was very satisfying at the climax to see the payoff of all the buildup of the history of this planet, making this planet almost a character unto itself, like we view good terrain on a Warhammer 40k tabletop game. It's not just there to dress the experience, it's also there to inform it. Now, I won't get too far into the specifics of what the climax is, because really, that's not really what I'm trying to get at here. And the climax isn't necessarily the point, because while these two are deadly rivals, they are at one point forced to work with each other as opposed to against each other. Though, of course, there's lots of <laughs> backstabbing and all of the stuff that's going on, as you would expect. Nevertheless, you see them almost appreciate each other as rivals. Sort of big brother, little brother, I'm taking my little brother to school and nobody gets to pick on my little brother but me. Kind of a affectionate hatred. But they never cease being themselves. So over the, the span of 10,000 years, and it's this great snapshot of the entire Necron problem, is that they have had 10,000 years. They have fought against each other. They have cooperated with each other. It seems as if they've grown to respect each other. And you think, if these two just worked together, they could accomplish miraculous things. And in fact, they do. But at the very end of it all, they revert back to who they were, 
Once they don't have anything to work together on, they are once again at each other's throats, behaving just as they did at the beginning of the book. And without coming out and saying it directly, oh gosh, this is probably my favorite thing about what Robert Rath did with this book, is that he didn't come out and do the anime explanation. And for those of you who aren't familiar with anime, it's very common in anime for when a person is doing their ultimate move in combat, that they explain exactly how it works to their opponent. Now, in a battle, that would make no sense. That is done purely for the viewer. Oftentimes, Japanese shows treat their audiences like they're idiots and they can't pick up on unspoken, unclearly spelled out things. That's just a, a cultural difference in the way that they produce their media as well because the public expects that sort of thing because they want to know exactly what's going on. Personally, I very much dislike that and I much, much prefer the shows that make the viewer or the reader Take a stab at it and get the satisfaction of being right or the chagrin of being wrong. So Robert doesn't come right out and say at the end of the book, and so Traz and the Infinite remained a kleptomaniac, compulsive liar, Indiana Jones, and Orc and the Diviner remained an insufferable know-it-all who was probably right all along, but you just hate him so much you don't want to listen to him. If you freeze-frame the context of that, as much as they complain about the way that their society is stuck in the old ways, how dogmatic it is, how frustrating it is, that, th that no one is getting creative, nobody is thinking of new things, that they're all stuck in the past, these characters are fundamentally stuck in their own past. They are stuck at the moment they changed from flesh to metal. And as much as they would like to transcend their state of being, whether that is a grand restoration of their past selves or a transcendent awakening of a new power, a new way of life, it is very unlikely that they will ever get it, that their race will ever be able to move on from that moment they were changed. They are unchanging. It adds a sense of tragic futility to everything that they do. And that is quintessential Necron lore. So for that, I gave this book a 4.5 out of 5 stars. I docked it a few points because politics and lawyering and courtrooming. I'm kidding. I'm not using my own personal trauma as a reason to lower the rating. It did drag on a little bit on that note. And I feel like if someone is going to get lost reading this book, it's probably going to be during the point where they're setting up committee meetings and having adjudications and discussing all of the finer points of Necron Law. Not a lot of people, I imagine, are very excited about Necron Ace Attorney. Though, if you wanted to draw that and send it to me, I would totally share that with the world. So, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty darn close. It never lost sight of what the Necrons are supposed to represent in their modern incarnation. So, next, let's talk Wrath of Magnus. Oh man, my big red angry boy. Now, the Horus Heresy has been going on for a long time. In fact, I think the release schedule of the Horus Heresy books has taken in real lifetime longer than the seven or so years that the war itself was supposed to take place. And fair enough, there's a big galaxy, there's a lot going on. You could spend many, many, many more years telling stories that we haven't even heard of in that setting. 
But I remember after I finished the initial trilogy and managed to get through both of the Dark Angels books, oof, when I really started getting back into reading the heresy full tilt was when I read A Thousand Sons. Now, as a chief librarian, you can probably imagine why. I love psychers, and I was very interested in how their story developed. I knew sort of the, the general fiction behind The Thousand Sons, because of course, at that point, there was no Thousand Sons Codex. Thousand Sons didn't have rules in the Horus Heresy game. They were just a unit that you could take in your Chaos Army that had AP3 bolt guns, and that felt really unfair. But you knew that there was something that was wrong with their bodies. Araman did some magic vacuum cleaning, and all is dust. But A Thousand Sons presented this image of this hopeful, powerful, knowing, smart, infallible character in Magnus the Red, and of course, all of his sons, who are little micro-versions of him, just like they are for all of their Primarch father relationships. And I was a sucker for it. I was all in on the tragedy of Magnus. Oh man, he was done so wrong. He was only trying to help when he warned the Emperor. Why didn't the Emperor actually look at that and think, wow, what a loyal son I have. As a father myself, my son has destroyed things in an attempt to help me before. And boy, you just kind of take a deep breath, but you go, well, you know, thank you for trying, son. That being said, my son has also not done anything that jeopardized the entire future of humanity and undid, say, hundreds of years of work that I've done, because I haven't done hundreds of years of work, even though sometimes I feel like it. Regardless, the first time I read through that book, I was sucked into the tragedy of the Thousand Sons. Everything seemed to go against them. They were put upon so badly. They were tricked and treated poorly. And if they had just been listened to, if they had just been heard, things could have been different. And it wasn't until I got through the second read-through of it that I started to notice some of the flaws that were built into it. And I have to give Graham credit for this because me being the excited reader, going through it full bore, couldn't put it down. I wasn't paying attention to the little hints that he led there of the sort of pride, the hubris that Magnus and everyone else had in all of their own positions. This is as true of Russ, by the way, and Malkador and the Emperor himself as it is for Magnus. But Magnus is like his father. The signs were there. He just wasn't looking for them. And yes, Magnus did something wrong. In fact, he did many things wrong. Nevertheless, his circumstances were terrible. He was the victim of lies and cheating. And there is something just inherently unfair about what happened with the Thousand Sons. Even though you recognize Magnus, you fool, the signs were there. You could have seen it if you had just kept your eye open. Nevertheless, he was done dirty by the structure of reality and also the structure of unreality. What Wrath of Magnus sets to do is set the stage for why Magnus would go from Primarch to Demon. What would cause him to make that plunge? Now, we've seen it with some of the other brothers at this point. Fulgrim went full bore into it because he was just, he was a junkie. Angron also very, very tragic, dealt a very, very poor hand, and probably one of the most sympathetic characters in terms of this guy is straight up a victim. 
Magnus was victimized, but he also kind of walked into it. Angron had very little choice from the beginning. Nevertheless, he was ruled by his negative emotions, he succumbed to them, and he embraced them. And then there's Mortarion, who Nurgle used a fancy thing called Stockholm Syndrome to convince him to join up with the cause. It's the most bewildering combination I can think of. He who hates sorcerers becomes demon sorcerer and can't see that in himself. Grandpa Nurgle told me that this isn't real magic. Anyway, I digress. One would have thought that Magnus would have ascended to demonhood prior to this point, considering everything that happened, but he held on to his humanity. And the payoff for that was in this story, and oh gosh, I loved it so much. Because in A Thousand Suns, and to a lesser extent Prospero Burns, Magnus was so sure of himself. And he's got a little bit of that swagger still. He's still incredibly confident in his abilities. He's ridiculously powerful. He's acknowledged by people such as Perturabo and Malkador and the Emperor as being incredibly smart and farsighted beyond all of his other brothers, including my main man, Sanguinius. Though, to be real, Sanguinius kind of saw his part coming. I gotta slide in for my homeboy here. Nevertheless, Magnus is unsure about a lot of things. He's angry about what happened to Prospero. He's angry about being lied to, but he doesn't want to give up on a greater future for humanity that he believes that he can still be a part of, or even the architect of using that site that he is so often praised for by his greatest rivals and most critical brothers. He's lost, lost on the inside, even after pulling himself, literally pulling himself together, soul shard by soul shard, he is nevertheless missing purpose at this point in the heresy. Seeking the last shard of himself on Terra, he orchestrates a way inside the walls, and because he is not a demon, he can get through what's called the Telethesic Ward, which keeps the demons out of the inner palace. And I'm going to just do an extra double super special Big Mac spoiler warning part two on this because I need to discuss the climax in a little bit of detail because it just dives into a perfect wrap up to such a conflicted character. Because what do you do with a character? What do you challenge a character with who has been hurt so badly, but has caused so much hurt, who is feeling victimized, but also a victimizer, lost, wandering a path that he doesn't know where the end is, what do you do to that as an author? You give an opportunity for redemption and forgiveness and see what he'll do. And that's exactly what happens. Do you want to reconcile, finally, between the Emperor and Magnus? We, as an audience, have been dying to know what they would say to each other about what happened. The catastrophe of Magnus's warning, the undoing of the Emperor's great work, even though it was done for a noble cause. But you do it in several different layers. Because first, Magnus has to deal with Malkador. Malkador, who was ultimately the architect of the burning of Prospero. Yes, it was the Emperor's authority that sent that force over there, but Malkador is the one who unleashed the wolves. And he's the one who sent Constantin Valdor and the Sisters of Silence, people who very much did not like Magnus, knowing that they would err on the side of violence if there was the slightest bit of resistance. And for as much as I love the Custodians for being just really, really cool, they are always itching for a reason 
to kill their allies. It's the flaw that makes them so entertaining. And I think it's why they and the wolves get along so well, though that's a subject for another podcast segment. Malkador actually shows contrition. He apologizes, in a way, to Magnus, and lets Magnus vent on him a little bit. Well, a lot of it. You'll, you'll see it if you read it. So, that offers a little bit of a resolution to that particular argument. Magnus gets to confront the reason why his beloved Tisca and his legion were so ravaged, and of course is made aware of Horus's own role in that. And it's at that point that it's made even more clear, though it has been discussed in some of the previous books, that Magnus is really in this for himself. While he's fighting with the traitors, he hasn't really pledged himself to Horus or to the powers of chaos. Ostensibly, he's there to kill the emperor, to take over the throne and to lead it, and to lead humanity, because who among his brothers on the traitor side could possibly do that? He's smart enough to recognize that Horus is being eaten alive by the power that he borrowed from Chaos. Fulgrim can't rule himself, much less anybody else. Mortarion isn't really interested in living things anymore, and Angron sort of speaks for himself at this point. Perturabo's main concern is defeating Dorne and undoing his greatest work, Conrad Kurz is nihilistic and just thinks that everyone's going to die, so what's the point? Alpharius is dead, and Lorgar is too busy worshipping the powers of chaos. At this point, Magnus is the last one left who has enough humanity left and enough care for humanity to actually pick up the pieces and maybe drive them towards a brighter future. He hasn't given up on that yet, though he's lost his vision of exactly what that is in this moment. He wants it, but he doesn't know how to go about it. And of course, he's feeling incredibly guilty for what he did to the Emperor's dream. A guilt that is reinforced when he confronts his father in the throne room, and the Emperor shows him what they could have done together had the heresy not happened. It's the great what if, right? What if Horus had never fallen? What if the Chaos Powers had not found root among the legions and the Primarchs? What if the Great Crusade had finally reached the edges of the galaxy? What would Magnus and the Emperor be doing? What would humanity look like? What was the Emperor's dream of a bright future? What was worth killing all of the Xenos and all of the humans who wouldn't agree to obtain? And great care is made to show that it would have created a great future for humanity. The Emperor, his father, looks at him like the prodigal son and offers him a risky gambit, a gambit that was so risky that he wouldn't even tell his own bodyguards he was going to do it, and says, I will forgive you for what you've done. We can start over. You can be my son again. Vulcan, standing there in the throne room, we could be brothers again. Magnus, wanting so much to undo all of the harm that he's done, but also smart enough to understand that forgiveness comes with a price. What is that price? His sons. The Emperor says that no gene science that he can perform can undo the curse of the flesh change. That Magnus's legion is going to die. That he will have to give up on his goal of saving them. The, the thing that he sacrificed his eye for and offers to replace those lost sons with a new kind of space marine. 
someone better than the ones before, a new legion under Magnus, free of the taint of chaos and the possibility of flesh change, new and improved. And all Magnus has to do is take his hand and forsake his few remaining sons, and he can have forgiveness. Now this was a really well-crafted bargain from an entertainment perspective because we're finally glimpsing a little bit of closure on how Magnus becomes a demon primarch. At what point does he stop being the victim of others? And at what point does he start taking responsibility and choosing his own destiny? At what point is it no longer the emperor's fault? So I'm going to reframe this bargain in something that's a little bit more relatable to us as people. Imagine that you love your children. You have children if you don't have them. And the children that you do have, imagine, and some of this may be true for some people who are listening, imagine that they are crippled with an incredibly painful, horrible handicap. The sort of thing that breaks your heart to watch them go through. You love them with all your heart. You sacrifice much. You'd even give an eye to stop them from suffering if you could. And then a doctor comes up to you and says, well, we understand that you went through this terrible process. It was very hard for you to have children in the first place, and they came out a little bit broken. Now, I'm sorry that that happened, but I can give you new children. If you give me your old children so that we can see them off the rest of their lives, we can start over for you. You could have new children, children that would be perfect, that would have no faults, that wouldn't be subject to these terrible conditions. That your current children have but you don't get to see your current children anymore they will have brief lives we'll try to make them comfortable but now you can start over what choice would you make and i'm sure that there are people out there who could make either choice though i'm not going to venture a guess as to what proportion would decide no screw you i'm keeping my children you can't take them from me i love them or it's time to move on, we need to start over. And how do you criticize a choice like that? Whatever the person chooses, and no matter what you choose in these situations, you lose something. You either lose the opportunity for an easier and more successful future, or lose the things that you have sacrificed so much to preserve, maintain, comfort, and care for. That choice presented before any person, I believe, would be infuriating. And that's exactly what Magnus's response is. And I love this part because he looks over to Vulcan, who's standing right there, ready to protect the Emperor, who is still sitting on the throne. He's basically just, I don't know, I'm not going to call him like something pithy, like a dad watching TV, sitting in his chair, not paying attention to his kids. Because he's literally preventing Earth from becoming a demon world at this point, just with his own power, fighting against the Immaterium. Magnus turns to Vulcan and he says, Could you do it? And Vulcan has to admit that he could not. And Magnus is enraged at the thought, oh, How do you think that I could? But in his own internal dialogue, it talks about how tempted he was to take up the bargain. He's not just angry at the Emperor for making the choice, he's also angry at himself for how close he was 
to abandoning his sons. And for any of us who have sacrificed a great deal to protect their children from suffering, knowing how much easier it would be to just walk away, that strikes a nerve. And it's at this point that Magnus finally makes his choice. And with the knowledge that we have about the future of his legion, about Ahriman's rubric, and how he loses them all anyway, that just adds more to the tragedy of the Thousand Sons. While at the same time, you firmly understand, at the end of this book, that Magnus knew what he was getting into. He knew that he was going to lose them one way or another. But ultimately, the choice to become a demon prince, to pledge himself fully to the powers of chaos, came on his own. That he did have a chance to make right what he broke, to look at a brighter future, and be a part of making it happen. But instead, he chose to trust the untrustable. He sided with chaos. And that decision belongs to him. But the choice is just tragic enough to stay true to that Thousand Sons theme. Is Magnus really responsible for such a terrible circumstance? The decision that he made was ultimately unfair, wasn't it? And that is truly a Thousand Sons theme. And as bewildering as this story has been to follow from time to time, as difficult as it has been to get through some of the more esoteric notions of the Thousand Sons, a journey that has gone very, very deep into the realm of metaphor and lost a few people along the way. Nevertheless, this short book was the perfect capstone to the Thousand Sun story in the 30K novels. I really, really loved it. And I should, at this point, this is Fury of Magnus, not Wrath of Magnus. Wrath of Magnus, I believe, is the campaign book for when he invaded Prospero in the modern 40K timeline. Fury of Magnus is the name of the short story. You can see how I might have gotten them mixed up. Even so, it got me thinking... What would it have looked like if he had made the other choice? It is strongly hinted in this book that the Emperor is already aware of, or at least somewhat behind the design of the Primaris Marines. And this is something that's easy for them to do now because it's taken them so long to write these books to get to this point where you could insert retroactively into the lore, Ah yes, the Primaris were part of the plan all along, mwahaha, and groan about that as we may... The idea of Magnus the Red at the front of a Primaris Psyker Legion, immune to the effects of the flesh change. Man, that gives me some ideas. I may just have to incorporate some of those ideas, at least in some way, into my own special slice of the Warhammer 40k universe. And you'll hear a little bit more about that as we get going. So, with that discussion out of the way, I'm going to give Fury of Magnus a 5 out of 5. I have not been able to stop thinking about it since I finished reading it. And while The Infinite and the Divine was great, my mind has been able to put that down. And Fury of Magnus, I have not been able to stop. So I hope you enjoyed this fairly long sojourn into the librarius here with me. I will be doing some more book reviews as I read more books. If you have any particular requests, feel free to send me a message, facebook.com slash brothercaptainmorgan. Comment on a post or send me a private message via that page. If there's a book you'd like me to take a little slice at, 
I'd be more than happy to entertain your ideas. That's how I started reading The Infinite in the Divine, after all. A big thank you to Sherman for recommending this book for me. I really enjoyed it. So that wraps up segment two. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these books if you've read them. I encourage you to go and read them and tell me what you think if you haven't. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that last little segment, which ended up being a long segment. It was completely contrary to my expectations, where I thought that Session Zero would take the whole episode, and instead I blathered on about books and literature and reading and writing for about 50 minutes, so that was nice. Regardless, I had a good time, and I hope you did too. Just as a quick reminder, it's likely that the next episode will either be delayed or perhaps skipped, depending on how things roll out with the editing and recording schedule that I'm going to have to have. I have a couple different segments in mind and I kind of need to choose between the few that I have. So I have some more lore deep dives into concepts like lesser warp deities that I'd like to talk about. And that's more or less the idea that it's more than just the four powers of chaos that are powers at play and that perhaps they aren't as eternal as they'd like to think they are. And that ties in somewhat generally to a narrative of hope that's worming its way into the grim dark that I'd like to kind of call out and address. Beyond that, I have some ideas for doing a Why I Love segment, which is a little bit different than your standard sort of codex review. But I want to bring some people onto the show who want to talk about why they love their faction so much. What is it about them that draws their attention? How do you go about picking a favorite faction? Have them introduce some ideas of the faction, some interesting books or lore or whatever it may be, and hopefully get a game in with them. That one's going to be a little bit harder to schedule, but I'm willing to give it a try. And while it would be pretty easy for me to just interview myself on why I love Blood Angels so much, I think it would be a little bit too self-serving to do that on my own for the first one. <laughs> so those are a couple of the ideas that I'm floating around. I have a few more if you have some ideas or something that you would like to hear me talk about that isn't what I already mentioned, I would love to hear from you what you are interested in right now. But with that out of the way, and in just the nick of time, it is now the point where I must sign off and bid you good day and close up the librarius. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k hype man USA, and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalazdi. So, with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. I am Chris Morgan, and you are listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast. Some rights reserved.